It's the weekend edition of FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, The City, where we step back from the rush of the news cycle to take deeper dives and different looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, here with the one and only Ozzy Paberin, a Washington Post national reporter and the returning co-creator of this podcast. Welcome back, Ozzy. Thanks, Harry. November's election hasn't been a front page story in New York, a state where Democrats now have supermajorities in both houses of the legislature. And that hasn't elected a Republican statewide in two decades, with polling showing that it's unlikely to change this year. It's also a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans more than two to one. And even independents, those who are not registered with the party, outnumber Republicans also. But despite all that, New York has more competitive House races than any other state except California. And that's after a judge threw out maps that Democratic lawmakers had drawn and that had been intended to lock in the party's political advantages. And a special master drew new ones. And those new ones were more competitive. That turned what forecasters had expected to be a pickup of as many as five seats into a contest where Democrats fear they could lose five seats in what one party official here called a, quote, extinction level event, unquote, and in a national environment where Republicans only need to win, you guessed it, five seats to take back control of the House. And all of this, by the way, could have been avoided if the state on Andrew Cuomo's watch had counted just 87 more New Yorkers and kept its existing 27 House seats, with 19 filled by Democrats. So joining us now to fill listeners in on all these competitive races, as the fate of the nation may lie in a handful of congressional contests, most of them just outside but in the orbit of New York City, is NBC and MSNBC national political correspondent Steve Kornacki. Steve, uh, welcome. There's lots of races to discuss here. I am one of the many New Yorkers who could use some catching up, to be quite honest. And uh, I'm hoping you can give listeners just a rundown as we're two weeks out from the start of early voting here and less than a month from Election Day. Yeah, well, I mean, great to be with you. And I I mean, your introduction, you know, covered it. It, It's um, sort of unlikely and unexpected. But New York is I, I mean, I'm looking ahead to election night and you know, we do a lot of run throughs here, simulations, basically, where we're trying to just get a sense of what the flow of the night is going to be like. And New York is a much bigger part of that now, just in terms of my own thinking and my own planning um, these house races. And and there's just there's I, I got a list of nine that, you know, could be, you know, competitive here, nine that I'm really expecting to be keeping an eye on throughout the night, varying degree in my mind, kind of varying degrees of you know, likelihood that, that these will actually end up being competitive. But but right under this, you know, originally, you know, with the, the sort of stranglehold on state government, uh, Democrats had uh, had a past maps where you could see Republicans coming out of the night with only three or four uh, districts. Now you could see Republicans ending up with like eight or nine, um, you know, out of the 26. I, I mean, if they in a real incredible Republican wave, maybe even more. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, we could start. Um, I don't know if there's a good place to start. I mean, I, I just I look at like Long Island, you know, for instance, you got four based on on Long Island. I think under the you know what here's a good example of, of how the, the judges ruling change things. 
you take the first and the second district, the first district, um, which is Lee Zeldin's district, which he's, you know, giving up to run for governor. Um, and then you take the second district, which is you know, Andrew uh, Garbarino elected in uh, in 2020. Essentially, what the Democratic map tried to do um, was to say, OK, fine, Garbarino, you can have the second district. We're going to make that very, very Republican. But we're going to do that by making the first district much more Democratic. Zeldin's gone. It's an open seat. And they basically redrew it in a way that the Democrat should win the district. Um, then the, the, the court came in and rebalanced it, essentially. And so each district now looks, I think if you look at the, the new lines, for the first district, Joe Biden would have won it by a fraction of a point. So it's it's essentially on paper um, it, it, close to a toss up. Then you factor in, you know, look, a midterm environment that may and, and this is a this is a whole other subject, but a midterm environment that we would say historically the midterm environment is going to favor the out of the opposition party. Certainly some indications that, that it's going to favor Republicans this year. Certainly some indications it's going to favor Republicans on Long Island. I think that's 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 a more specific thing. So that first district is suddenly Nick Lolota, the Republican candidate there. Yeah, I think has a has a decent chance, you know, of, of carrying that. It's competitive, but certainly has a decent chance of holding that for Republicans under the Democratic map. I think would have had, you know, very little chance of doing that. Garbarino under the Democratic map would have been safe. You know, would have been safe for years to come. He's got on paper a more competitive, um, you know, a more competitive district now, but it's still a district that would have voted for Trump under these new lines. And so if it would have voted for Trump in 2020, it did vote for Garbarino. And I think, you know, he's done some things in Congress that I think to, to the extent there are some swing voters there, you know, who might be hesitant about Trump, about Republicans. I think Garbarino's done a few things that might have kind of um, might mollify them. So I think he's got, you know, a, a real shot at holding that. So Republicans could hold those two. Democrats were all set to wipe one of those out. Then you've got the third and the fourth. They're being their Democratic seats now being vacated by Tom Swazi. He ran that uh, campaign for governor. Sorry to chuckle at that. And um, and Kathleen Rice um, leaving her seat as well. Um, they're, you know, they're sort of fringe targets, I would say, uh, for uh, for Republicans to pick up They're 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 They would have voted for Biden by, you know, High single digits, about ten points. Um, it'd be a surprise. Those are those. Each one of those to me is a test. I would say, especially the fourth district. Um, it, it, it's a test to me on election night of like, are we really seeing a Republican wave? Because I think if one of those goes, and I think if one of them goes, it, it might be more likely to be the the, the fourth than the than the third, um, just because of the candidates. Um, I think the Republicans have, have nominated a stronger candidate potentially in the fourth district than in the third district. Um, if one of those goes though. Uh, to me, that's like, whoa, now that now we're looking at a potential wave. here. Steve, I find that so fascinating that when you're further out on Long Island in Lee Zeldin's seat, the, the first district all the way in Suffolk County, that there, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're sort of saying that is going to sort, sort of be a toss up, but not necessarily an indicator of what we might see for the rest of the night on election night. Whereas if you get closer to New York City, moving west into that um Tom Swazi seat, which used to sort of hover between the Queens and Nassau border, sort of where I grew up. I can I can like sort of picture, you know, Northern Boulevard running right through parts of that area. You're saying that will actually really tell you sitting at 30 Rock, like how election night's going to go. Can you just like explain a little bit more of that? Yeah, yeah. I guess there's two ways of looking at it. Right. Because we actually are, we are in this place right now that we yeah. that we weren't um, four or five months ago when we kind of were all assuming this was just going to be a. The question was, how good would the night be for Republicans? Now, I think there is at least at, at this point, several weeks out, some suspense about like, hey, 
you know, is there actually a chance Democrats hold the House here? And it doesn't look impossible. It looks unlikely, but not impossible from this this far out. So in terms of I, I guess you could look at it two ways in terms of is there a Republican wave going on, something on the scale that we were all talking about being possible a few months ago? That's where you look at the third and the fourth district. And I think to me, what, what, what's interesting about those seats is on paper, the third would be a better target for Republicans. It, it, they both would have voted for Biden. The third, I think the margin for Biden was high single digits under these new lines. The fourth, the margin for Biden, now you're into double digits. So on paper, the fourth is a bigger stretch for the, the Republicans. But I think they've nominated a stronger candidate, the, the Republicans have, uh, D'Esposito in um in the fourth district than in the third. In the third, um, you know, Santos has made himself vulnerable on some of his rhetoric on abortion, some of his rhetoric on January 6th. Might be a bridge too far, even though on paper the district is more winnable. But my what I'm saying is, yeah, those two are good examples. If, if for any reason either one of those is flipping to the Republicans uh, on election night, if we look up and see one of those flipping, I think that's a barometer that, like, to, to be flipping a Biden plus eight, a Biden plus 14 district, um, that to me, it would be a sign that something big is happening in New York and nationally in the Republican favor. The flip side of it is, yeah, the eastern uh, you know, side of Long Island, if you're, if you're talking about um, Democrats picking up the first or the second, that to me would be an indicator of, hey, maybe they could, maybe they're having a better, you know, the kind of night that could put them in contention to hold the House. Because I think, I think in a, even in a, even in a modest Republican year, the Republicans would keep the first and second as they're currently drawn. If the Democrats pick off one of those, then yeah, I think we 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 could be talking about you know Democrats having that kind of night nationally where they could they could keep it close. Yeah, that that's amazing. Like I I think I grew up in the third district and I know absolutely <laughs> nothing about the fourth, so that's a whole different planet. Um, but um, swing a little bit further north. We have um, a really competitive race sort of surprisingly with Sean Patrick Maloney, north of New York City. He is the head of the Democratic House effort um, to hold on to the House. And he himself is is facing what I don't think many people had expected to be such an incredibly competitive race. Um, what do you, I'm, I'm wondering if you could just sort of set the table there. And how did we get here with the head of the House who's supposed to be helping Democrats get elected? sort of sweating it out. Right. In the way he yeah. Well, and this is, this is, um, there's all sorts of, I don't know if this has affected the competitiveness of the race in the fall, but there's all sorts of hard feelings among some Democrats about the way this all played out in the redistricting process where, you know, Sean Patrick Maloney running the, uh, the D triple C, um, you know, the, the way the, 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 um, this was redrawn, um, uh, by the courts basically could have pitted, Mondaire Jones could have made a claim to being the incumbent in this district. Sean Patrick Maloney could have made a claim to being the incumbent in this district. And Maloney immediately announced, you know, within seeming minutes of the, the, the judge's ruling, that's it, I'm running in the 17th. And Mondaire Jones kind of looked, looked around and said, okay, well, you know, freshman Democrat, uh, and he you know, runs 75 miles south in, uh, in, in this newly created 10th district in New York City, loses the, the primary, and that's it for him. And so, I, I, there was some hard feelings there, I know, among Democrats. Now, he got a challenge, Maloney did, in the, in the primary, didn't have any trouble surviving it. So I, I don't know if that's played any role here, if it you know, bled over into the fall at all. But so you're looking at a district, right. you know, Hudson Valley District, 
uh, on the new lines under these new lines it would have voted for Joe Biden by 10 points. So, again, under these lines, hmm. you would say uh, that that should be safe for Democrats. So it's another one of these that, that sets up a test on election night. Mike Lawler, the Republican who's running here, uh, I think has run a very aggressive campaign. You, you see a lot of ads from him. I, I for, for that matter, you see a lot of ads from Maloney. Maloney you know, tells you something about the polling he must be seeing. Um, you know, how serious he's taking this race. Um, but that's another one of those, you know, sort of barometer bellwether races for me, um, just like the third and the fourth, a Biden plus 10 district, you know, one of the top leaders of Democrats in the House you know, runs their campaign committee. Um, and yeah, if, if this if this is one of those races where on election night, Waller is is winning it. Um, it's a pretty obviously that's a that's a tough blow to Democrats just in terms of what they were hoping to get out of New York in terms of seats. But also, I think that's a signal about yeah. about a tide that could be bigger than the district. Yeah. And, and and just before I turn over to Harry, just is it common to have someone in Sean Patrick Maloney's position, head of the DCCC, who's fighting to get Democrats elected, having to fight for his own reelection? Is that common? Um, the most, there's a, the famous example was, you got to go back 30 years here, Guy Vanderjack was his name from Michigan. And he ran, he was like the eternal chairman of the NRCC, National Republican Congressional Committee. I think he ran it for 12 years, throughout the entire 80s, into the early 90s. And um, he was a great speaker. He was a keynote speaker at a Republican convention, seemed untouchable um, in party leadership. And in 92, there was a, um, it was a redistricting year and there was the House uh, banking scandal, the, the overdraft. They all were bouncing checks at the House Bank, if anybody remembers this. And he, he lost the primary, kind of out of the blue. And it was a, it was a shocking event. It was kind of on par with, uh, with Crowley losing a couple. He was treated that way in the moment. So that, he, he comes to mind. But um, um, yeah, or that, you know, then you've got um, the, the, obviously the most famous example of a leadership in, in a general election of a leadership uh, a member losing 1994, Tom Foley was the Speaker of the House, and that was the Republican Revolution. Tom Foley was a Democratic Speaker, had a district in Washington State, and he lost. Um, and so that's that's the ultimate. But uh, but this would be if, if, if this would be something Republicans would like to brag about on, on top of just getting the seat if they could take out you know the architect of the Democratic uh, strategy that that would be uh, they, they'd like that surely. Splitting like small D democracy and big D Democrats, you know, what often happens. So you saw this with uh, Banner and then with uh, Ryan is if you're not sure you're going to hold the leadership position, it's just time to retire. What's sort of cool and sort of distressing, I think, about what's happening in New York is that we have this much bigger share of competitive races than other states with. Uh, similar political compositions, which maybe is healthy and there should be more of that altogether, but it is sort of clearly unbalanced. If if you look at how this has played out in New York uh, versus, say, Florida in the courts and, and how the maps actually got drawn. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's no national standard, no national you know process for this. And so it's it's a state by state thing. And there's some states, you know, I mean, we've seen this movement in the last 10, 20 years where some states have really adapted the idea of these independent, either nonpartisan, bipartisan. You know, Iowa is, was, was sort of, I know, at the, the, the leading edge of this. Um, they don't have that many districts to draw, but the idea is just to draw these very four very competitive or you know, pretty competitive 
in some cases, very competitive districts uh, without regard to incumbency, you know, that sort of thing. Um, you know, California has, California's estate Democrats would love to, uh, you know, if they could right now play around more with the maps out there, because they could squeeze, obviously, more seats, I think, out of California, but they've got this, you know, voter approved, you know, 10 years ago, um, independent commission, this top two primary system out there, you know, everybody, Democrat, Republican runs in the primary, then the top two, regardless of party, advance to the general election. So um, Democrats really were looking nationally at the start of this cycle with redistricting. They were looking at states where they had the political power uh, on paper to draw the lines and where the states were big enough that they could draw the lines in a way that could make a meaningful difference in the count. And two that quickly emerged to them were Illinois and New York. And in Illinois, they I think they managed to do it. They they redrew lines uh, in, in their own um, in their own favor uh, in New York. They thought they had done it. They redrew them, as we're saying at the start, in a way that I, it could have feasibly left the state after after this election at 22 to four Democratic in the delegation. Um, they they did redraw them that way. But then there's the wild card of you can always you can always take these things to court. And uh, and, and it did not hold up in court. And so it, it, when you're again, we're talking about the possibility here. Republicans need a net gain nationally, as you say, of five seats to take the House. And we're talking about the possibility of, hey, if, if Democrats do have a really good night and a really good night for Democrats in the midterm would be just kind of treading water. And, um, you know, if it comes down to it and, and, and this thing is going to be decided by two or three seats one way or the other, that shift in New York could end up being decisive because that, you know, if, if the Democrats ever fell, if they got 216 seats, let's say, if that's where they ended up landing when everything got counted. They might end up looking back and saying, boy, if, if it hadn't been for that ruling in New York, it'd be 218, 219. And so so that, that that's wild card one. Uh, Kathy Hochul, I think, is in a pretty strong position for governor against Lee Zeldin. Polling most recently shows her up by eight to ten. Um, she has she's raised forty five million dollars. It's crazy. She has no coattails. It's a Rose Garden campaign. It's it's on there. That's good enough. So. Generally, in an out year, like the out party, which is the Republicans, is going to do well. That had been, I think, a big part of the wave dynamic you've been talking about, along with some of Joe Biden's political troubles. Uh, I'm curious if you think, and, and how we should read this on election night, the, the Roe decision by the Supreme Court, uh, ending that, and the Bruin decision, speaking of New York and, and, and throwing out the state's gun laws, if that changed the map, if that motivated Democrats in competitive districts to show up who maybe wouldn't have otherwise, uh, or, or, or if, if uh, this was less of a political thunderbolt, just looking at the polls, than maybe it seemed at the uh, at the time, or maybe we won't know until we get, we get through election night. And what races will you be looking at to uh, assess that? Yeah, I mean, it is. It's I, it's the. Um... Uh, it, it's it's my way of punting on a direct answer, but really it is the question of election night. But it, it's the reason it's a question is because there's some evidence from New York and, and from some other places, but there's some evidence over the summer, that special election that got Pat Ryan elected um, in, you know, in the old 19th district uh, in that special election to fill the, the, the Delgado term. Um, look, that that happened, you know, in the wake of the Roe decision. And we saw a couple things happen in the wake of that. That the road decision came down on June 24th, and at that point, Republicans, if you, you, 
the thing I'm always looking at, the two national indicators I'm always looking at for midterms are, A, what's the president's approval rating? And Biden's approval rating sits right now at about 43% on average nationally. Biden's approval rating is right where it's been for presidents whose parties have been wiped out in midterm elections. So you look at Biden's approval rating and you say, this looks like the standard midterm where the opposition party is just going to you know, do well kind of everywhere. But the other indicator you look at is the generic ballot. And that's when you ask people, do you want Democrats or Republicans to control Congress? And typically what we've seen in the past is when the president's job approval rating has been down and low, as low as Biden's is right now, you see in the generic ballot a clear advantage for the opposition party. Right now, those two things are not aligning and they're not tracking. When I, I looked at it the, uh, last night, I actually didn't check this morning, but um, the most recent look at the average had the Republicans leading the generic ballot nationally by a fraction of a point. So, you know, typically at this point, if you went back to you know, 2018, at this point, Democrats were leading the generic ballot by like eight points. You know, and that was the, the 40 seat gain for Democrats. You know, 2010 Republicans were winning it by five or six points at this point. That was when Obama lost 63 seats. That's typically what you see. That's not what we're seeing right now. So and that changed starting, I would say, over the summer. And I think it's I think it's clear that the, the Roe decision played a role in that shift. Um, I my own theory is that the other thing that happened this a couple of things happened this summer. Um, there was a period there where gas prices started to fall. Uh, and also Donald Trump. Um, it's not that he ever disappeared, but that he kind of really reclaimed center stage um, through the January 6th hearings, uh, through his sort of aligned candidates winning a lot of these high profile, you know, primaries through the Mar-a-Lago raid, all of these things happening over the summer really brought Trump back to the fore. And I think probably really brought a lot of voters feelings towards Trump back to the fore. And one thing Republicans are counting on in the midterm election is to be able to win over a type of voter who doesn't like Biden, who's not nuts about the Democrats, but who also doesn't like Trump. And in a lot of these swing districts, those are the voters who are going to decide these races. And so I, I, I've just kind of, in, in my mind, I've kept saying, like, let's get to the middle, late of late October. And that's about where we are right now. And let's see what's what's more at the center of the stage in our politics. Is it Trump or is it the economy and inflation? And I do think the economy and inflation, and especially this week, um, has started to reclaim that spot. Um, I know there's a January 6th hearing again this week as, as well. Um, but, you know, th- I, I think things have shifted a bit towards the Republicans, you know, since the end of the summer. But they're still not at a place where, you know, like I said, they're still not at a place where, where we've seen in past wave elections. So you, you, you talk to Republicans right now, and my sense is they feel like they feel like things have trended in their direction in the last couple of weeks. But what they're counting on is is that trend to really kind of increase uh, in the final couple of weeks here. And, and to the point where you'd be looking at a generic ballot on Election Day where they're up, you know, three, four five points, something like that. Right. Steve. So so I think that leads me to what will probably be like my last question for you is. What you're sort of describing is how the two parties are positioned for the midterms, and I'm wondering if you could sort of explain how the parties themselves may have changed. Obviously, the competitive races in Long Island and in the Hudson Valley are really a test between which party is going to have an advantage because of inflation, the road decision, the Supreme Court decision on guns. I'm wondering if the parties themselves have changed with you know, abortion rights being front and center in a way that they hadn't been before, 
with Trump sort of being the ever present ideologue in his party, sort of cleansing it of his oppositional forces. As voters are going into the polls, are you seeing that the parties themselves are sort of changing into something different from what they had been just a few years ago? Yeah, there's I mean, here in New York, I think it's it's kind of a district by district, you know, proposition, because I I, I look at some of these Republican candidates. um, Like I said, if you take a look at Santos in in the third district, where I, I, I think it's one of those that on paper in a really good year, Republicans could get. But I think Santos has really kind of tethered himself on abortion on January 6th to a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I suspect turns off the swing voters who could in a year like this be open to voting for Republicans or could maybe a more accurate way of putting it could be open in a year like this to voting against the Democrats. Um, Whereas if you look over at like, you know, Garbarino in the second district, I think he might have insulate. He voted for the uh, independent January 6th commission. He voted to certify the 20. He did some things that I think, you know, kind of tell those voters, yeah, it's okay. You can, you know, this is the, this is the kind of Republican you can, you can be on board with. So I think it kind of varies by district, but the, the other, I think this is a, this is a test of the potency of a board. I mean, look at the ads that are being run. I guess that's what I would say. Look at the ads that are being run. I, I haven't seen, I don't know that I've seen a democratic ad in this state. And this is true elsewhere too. It's not about abortion or it doesn't at least mention abortion. I mean, this is the thing they are counting on to carry them. Um, Conversely, look at the Republican ads. Crime, 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 crime. Um, That's one that I'm interested in, too. Um, You know, especially it seems, you know, Long Island, those districts, um, that's what Republicans are hitting out there. Um, And and, and I I suspect if, if Republicans are doing better than expected, in those Long Island seats, and, and in particular, um, crime, maybe, you know, the, the, the emphasis on crime um, may be a, a factor there. And I would, I'd look for that in a, you know, I wouldn't just look for that in New York. On, I'd be looking for that nationally on election night, because I know this has been something that's been played up elsewhere, too. A lot of these suburban districts, you know, it, it's the suburbs all around the country where Republicans have lost the most ground. Yeah. And so you've got this dynamic where there are cities around the country where you've seen rising crime rates, you've seen, you know, quality of life issues kind of take center stage and suburbanites, you know, Republicans are trying to tap into the unease that that creates among suburbanites. So that's an interesting question to me. Does that bring back into the Republican fold suburbanites who who were, and I think still are very turned off by Donald Trump, but are uneasy about what they're seeing in some of these, you know, blue cities. In terms of, uh, who votes as you're watching exit polling data on election night? Are there indicators, for instance, the uh, the, the the share of the vote uh, that's women uh, that are going to be suggestive as to which of these messages and which of these uh, parties is likely to break through? It's to me the the thing that I'm more interested in, and it's it's here in New York again. And it, this is I'll be looking for this in every you know district you know, where this kind of applies. But I think back to that, uh, the special election in the 19th this summer, Ryan and uh, and Molinaro, um, the, there was a, the more, um, uh, the turnout was higher in the democratic friendly areas, the small cities, mm-hmm. uh, the, there was a disparity in turnout. The rural areas were very Republican, but the, the participation rate was lower. 
So there was a there was a gap that we were seeing this summer. And I think I, I attributed that in my mind at the time to the Roe decision and probably to Trump being so prominent at that moment. And it really fired up um, Democratic voters and they came out disproportionately um, uh, uh, in that in that special election. And I think I, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I have to go back and look. I think I even went back and looked after that special election and, and said, if you had equalized the turnout rates in every county in that district, what would have happened? And I think actually it would have been enough for Ryan to lose by yeah, 100 votes or something. Like I, it literally was one of those, you always, it's the cliche about like, it comes down to turnout. But it really, it was like this summer, there was, there was enough of an enthusiasm gap between the Democratic areas and the rural, you know, Republican areas um, that it, it, I think it swung the seat there. So I want to see. Is Ryan's general going to be uh, uh, one of the bellwethers, right? Because the specialist actually from the old maps and, right. and the generals in the new ones. So, so it's, it's a little fascinating. It's it, yeah. So he, he's one of those, it is a bellwether if he's in trouble um, because it, you know, he should, he's running on paper in a more, it's a different district, but it's a more friendly district, you know, cause on paper, the district he won the special election in, had voted for uh, Biden by like a point and a half. The district that he um, is now uh, drawn into and is running in is Biden by eight. So it's it's a it's a it's more friendly political turf for him. Um, but if he finds himself, if it's it's one of those where yeah, if it's a Biden plus eight district and we're looking up on election night and, and, and Ryan is losing, um, says to me obviously that's a that's a good sign for Republicans. And it says to me probably that that, that that dynamic I'm talking about where the Republican areas were not so into that special election are on fire, um, you know, in the general election. Uh, all right, Steve, I have just one last qu- question for, f- for you. Election night. What are you going to be drinking that <laughs> keeps you going to stay up and watch all these election, all these election results come in? Coffee? Yeah, Dew, I, I got my Duncan else. right here. And there's a 24-hour uh, Duncan in the basement, so I think we'll get a box of Joe or two and uh, bring it up to the studio, and we'll see. I, it's you know I tell you, it's, I, I, I'm I'm con- not convinced, but I think it's very likely that we're not talking election night either. We're talking election week, um, you know, because you're just the, the states that are going to decide the Senate in 2020 were some of the slowest counting states. I don't see a lot that's changed, and there's also this. Inc- wild card possibility that I don't think is crazy where Senate control again comes down to Georgia and Georgia has the runoff rule and nobody gets 50% in Georgia. And so we all wait till December 6th for the Georgia runoff to decide control of the Senate. So really it, it, it could be election month too. I, I hope to celebrate election week, election month, election year, election decade with you and Dunkin' Donuts and whatever else you're, you're well, taking I appreciate to, it. to keep going. Um, and uh, yeah, this is, I'm glad for New York this year. It's, uh, it's, it's keep things interesting for me. So I, I think I'll be, I'll be spending a little bit in Jersey, a little bit in New York. I like when the, uh, when this area gets a little more attention nationally, and I think it will this year. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate the uh, time as a parochial New Yorker. New York City guy hardly thinks about the rest of the state, let alone the rest of the country most of the time. It's it's great to have your insight. And let me just say that, like, if Trump hadn't been as loud and Trumpy as he'd been, and consequently things had played out differently, uh, you know, in the runoffs last time, 
uh, Republicans would have controlled the Senate. New York would not city would not have gotten billions of dollars in aid during the course of the uh, the pandemic and the shutdown. And in this weird, weird sense, uh, Trump sort of saved the uh, cities totally by accident at the end. And it, it's wild to think there's some chance he may do the uh, the same thing two years later again uh, in the same state and, and, and that it could have this, this this ripple effect. We'll see. It's going to be a really interesting night. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's that wild. The Trump wild card is when I think back, a former president being this prominent and this central to a midterm campaign. I, I just there, I can't think of a precedent for this. So it's it's a totally interesting wild card. Thanks so much, Steve. Really appreciate having you on. Happy to do it. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists online at thebrick.house. Our hosts this episode were Ozzie Pabra of The Washington Post and Harry Siegel of The City, who's also our executive producer. I'm Adam Kamara, the show's editor and engineer. A special thank you to our guests, Steve Kornacki of NBC and MSNBC, and to you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more. <laughs>